Welcome back to the Hayek Auditorium at the Cato Institute for the 2019 uh, Cato Surveillance Conference. Uh, I remain Senior Fellow Julian Sanchez. Uh, thank you both to those present and those uh, watching at home for joining us. Uh, as uh, I mentioned at the start of the conference, we focused on uh, issues of surveillance oversight at this year's conference. Uh, this morning uh, you heard about an array of institutions and entities and persons who uh, work to oversee uh, the secret use of uh, intelligence collection, um, ranging from the FISA court to the myriad inspectors general to the Government Accountability Office to uh, the Intelligence Committees of Congress. And uh, one of the newer uh, and in many ways uh, most sort of publicly useful uh, entities overseeing the intelligence community is uh, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, um, which has produced a number of uh, valuable reports um, that have given us unique insights into uh, some of the programs we've heard discussed earlier, such as Section 702 and Section 7215, uh, uh, the authority used for uh, the bulk record, phone records collection program. So to introduce the members of the board uh, and what I'm sure will be a fascinating discussion, I'm gonna pass off to our uh, uh, extremely uh, accomplished moderator, uh, Professor Jennifer Daskal of the Washington College of Law at American University. Great, thank you. Thank you, Julian, and thank you all for, for being here and those who are watching online. Um, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here and part of this conversation with the PCLAB members. Um, we have three out of the five PCLAB members here today. Two of them had conflicts, um, and so we're not able to attend, um, unfortunately. Um, but I am going to um, briefly, basically, um, I'm going to do something non-traditional and basically allow them to introduce themselves. Um, I've seen this done a few times and find it's way more interesting than hearing me speak. Um, so we have... Um, we have Adam Klein, we have Danitsi, and we have Aditya Bamze, and I hope I pronounced that correctly. And um, I'm going to start with Adam. Thank you. Thanks, Jen. So um, we are a non-traditional agency, so it's good that we're taking a non-traditional yes. approach to introductions. My name is Adam Klein. I'm chairman of the board. I'm also the only full-time member of the board. We have a full-time chairman and four part-time members, which is one of our unique features. Immediately before taking this position, I was at a think tank, the Center for a New American Security, where I worked on issues very comparable to the board's mandate, so the intersection of national security law and emerging technologies, and those are the things that I'm generally interested in. Uh, one, I guess we should all throw out an interesting fact about why, I get, why we got into this work. Before becoming a lawyer, I worked for the members of the 9-11 Commission on their post-governmental efforts to enact the 41-9-11 Commission recommendations. Uh, and one of those recommendations, of course, was this board. So this is an issue I've been tracking going back to 2004 when I started doing that work and advocating over the years for the creation of the board and then for the stocking of the board with members uh, and then to ensure that it had adequate resources and authorities. And so it's nice to finally be there to see the board come to fruition with the previous group of board members who did some great work. And I see we have Sharon Bradford Franklin, the former executive director here. Uh, so that's nice for us to see uh, and to continue and push the work forward now. Um, Jane Nitsa, thank you so much for, for having us today. So I'm one of the four part-time board members and one of the four lawyers on the board. Um, the second iteration of the board, we're very lucky that we have a technologist this time around, Ed Felton, who could not be with us today. Uh, but he's been enormously helpful as we start to have to dive um, into some of the more technical aspects of the programs to conduct effective oversight. 
So immediately pr um, prior to joining the board, I was working on a book um, on the rule of law. But before that, I spent about a decade in, in government. Part of it, about half of it in the executive branch, half in the judicial branch. When I was in the executive branch, I worked in the Office of Legal Counsel at Department of Justice. Um, and a good chunk of my portfolio was national security issues. Um, in terms of my interest in these issues, it's quite longstanding. My um, parents fled from behind the Iron Curtain, and so where I grew up with a lot of their stories of, um, you know, what, what happens when the breakdown between sort of balance of national security and privacy sort of falls away. Um, and and I'm and, and really thrilled to be here. Thank you. So thanks, Jan, and thanks so much for hosting us. Um, so um, my name is Aditya Vamsai, and in my other life, I'm a professor at the University of Virginia School of Law, um, where I teach, among other things, computer crime, uh, a course that addresses some of the issues that we, uh, we deal with as a board um, in the surveillance area. Um, and my path to, this, uh, to the board and this set of issues is immediately before I was uh, in academia. I was at the University of Virginia. Uh, immediately before that, I used to work at the Department of Justice in the same part of it that uh, Jen also worked at before I was there. Um, and I was an appellate attorney in the National Security Division. Uh, and I joined the National Security Division in March of 2013, which was mere moments before a set of disclosures occurred that prompted a whole lot of the work that the board did in its previous iteration, the 215 and 702 reports. Um, and so that was my uh, entree really into this, uh, into this area. And I, I was able to work on um, some cases involving uh, surveillance um, to argue some cases. Um, and, uh, and so that spurred an interest in this whole area. Before that, I was um, in the Office of Legal Counsel as well. And I had some uh, interaction with national security issues at that, that time. But, Really happy to be here. Great, thank you. Um, so, Adam, I'm going to start with you. You, you obviously mentioned already that you were um, part of the. You worked on the 9/11 Commission report, where the intellectual origins of the board um, started. But can you tell us a little bit about the purpose and the mission of the board, and, and how it's structured, and 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 what it's how it relates to the other many other oversight agencies, entities within the executive branch as well. Sure. As a good lawyer, I want to offer a technical clarification. I did not actually work on the 9-11 Commission staff, but immediately after the report, I left where I was working on Capitol Hill and joined an NGO that the 10 commissioners created called the 9-11 Public Discourse Project, which no longer exists, but it was a great organization that worked to educate Congress and the executive branch and the public about the recommendations. And so segueing into your question, the commission had 41 recommendations in its report pursuant to its mandate to investigate the causes of the attacks and then make recommendations to ensure that things like that wouldn't occur again. And so many of those recommendations, sort of generalizing, had the effect or the tendency of centralizing power within the intelligence community, within the homeland security apparatus. So some of those are creating a director of national intelligence, creating a national counterterrorism center, improving information sharing among the intelligence agencies, uh, using biometrics to track entries and exits into the United States. That originated the 9-11 Commission report. And so the tendency of all these things is more information, more centralization, more information sharing. Uh, and so on the other side of the balance, the Commission recognized that if you're going to create all this new centralized power, you need to have an increase, a concomitant increase in oversight powers. And so many of those oversight recommendations focused on Congress, uh, but they also looked at oversight within the executive branch, and they proposed that there be a board within the executive branch to conduct that type of oversight of efforts to protect the nation against terrorism. So that's the genesis of our board. It was initially constituted within the White House 
And then in 2007, Congress shifted gears and established the board as an independent executive branch agency with Senate-confirmed members. And how does your work coordinate with the work of the inspector generals and the other entities, privacy officers and other officers within the executive branch that are doing some of of related work on a day-to-day basis as well? Sure. Inspectors general, I would say, just to paint with slightly broad brush, tend to focus on individualized reports of waste, fraud, or abuse. That's not our mandate. Our mandate is more programmatic. Obviously, if there are individualized abuses that we learn about, we would, of course, take appropriate action and inform the appropriate officials. Those could also be informative for our programmatic oversight, because if something goes wrong in an individual case, that may suggest that programmatic changes or improvements are needed. But our focus, I would say, is at a higher level of generality. Is this program wise? Is it necessary? Are there enough safeguards built in? Are the right people making these decisions, given the stakes at play? What are the future implications of allowing the government to conduct this kind of collection, analysis, and so forth? That's more our focus. And how do you, um, and this is for any of you, how do you decide what, what programs to work on, where to, where to focus your efforts? I mean, obviously, there's, there's a ton out there. So, so how do you make the choices that need to be made about what to do, where to focus? Sure. sure. Well, uh, first of all, so, so we're a five-member bipartisan board, so just in terms of the mechanics, we vote on the projects that we take on. Um, but in terms of thinking about what type of project we want to take on, um, I think we'll, we'll look to, um, for instance, if there's um, general, like, if something's being reauthorized. So, for instance, we're going to be issuing a report on UFA that's coming out um, hopefully in the next, next month or two. Um, and so we think that there will be a benefit to Congress and the public of having greater transparency into some of how the program has been operating. Um, we think we can add some value in looking at some of the privacy implications of the program, some thoughts on um, you know, whether or not the program should be modified, if it's reauthorized, things of that sort. Um, we'll look to um, emerging technologies. It's one of the things we've talked about in our strategic plan see if there's any um, programs in that space that would be useful for, for the board to offer their insight on. Um, so I think there's sort of a broad array of factors that we look to when, when deciding sort of what projects to, to take on. So the reason I somewhat ducked the question is because amongst us, I was the last one to join, and at which point the uh, report that Janie has just mentioned, the, the report about the sunsetting of the USA Freedom Act, was already in progress. So I haven't actually stepped back to think about like how we would select um, projects. Uh, it so happens that before I joined, the board had put out a list of projects that uh, we intend to work on, and those all made sense to me. And I think that um, it's one of those situations where it, we just should think through what is a value add to the Congress, to the American public, to the executive branch. Um, we all bring different skill sets. As, as Janie mentioned, one of our colleagues is a computer scientist, not a lawyer. The three of us are lawyers. And so whatever it is that we could do that would be useful I think is what we should focus on. Right. On a personal level, I mean, what you're doing is an enormous amount of work. How do you balance this with your, with your regular jobs? Well, so um, it, it has been a good amount of work, absolutely. Um, and uh, just <laughs> do the best that I can. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, we have great staff and they've put together great drafts. Um, but, uh, you know, I take every effort to, to read through every single line that we put out. Um, and, uh, and so um, I think that we just have to strike that balance. And, um, you, you know, this is uh, a thought that people might have about oh, what's, the, what's the benefit of having a board structured as it is right now with, with one full-time member and four part-time members. I actually think that that's, that's a benefit in the sense that 
um, the independence of the board is enhanced by having people who, um, you know, I have other things to do, and um, really I'm, I'm at liberty to say what I, what I feel is best mm -hmm. in the board's reports. Um, and so, um, so I think, you know, that's, that's kind of the balance that Congress struck, um, and uh, it's, it's incumbent on us to make it work. I think part of the idea maybe with having the part-time board members as well was to have some geographic diversity on the board because I think it is helpful um, not only to have people working in other jobs and bringing other conversations to bear on our work, but to have people surrounded by different sort of ge ge geographic conversations that, that um, take place. And so that's part of it. So let's talk a little bit about some of the work that you've done. So obviously, as, as you've already mentioned, um, there's a... 215 report um, that we are all, the rest of us are all eagerly awaiting. Um, my understanding is that the issue is a classification issue that remains an ongoing challenge. So a couple of questions about one, whether you can provide any information about whether or not you expect this report to be made public before the, the extension in the 215 program expires. Um, and secondly, what, what kind of at a high level you can talk about with respect to the, to the report? Sure, I'm happy to go ahead on this one. Um, just to fill in a bit of the background, I'm not sure if everyone is quite as deep in the weeds as we are, but uh, one of the things that was revealed uh, by the leaks in 2013 was the large-scale or bulk collection of telephone called metadata. So what number called what number, for how long, and so forth, but not what was said on the calls. And so our board, in it, with the previous membership, was Sharon there working on this, did a, a significant uh, landmark report on this program. Um, and then after that report and recommendations from other governmental bodies, Congress decided to trim back that authority substantially so that the government can still collect those records in fairly large numbers, as is disclosed in public transparency reports, uh, but without, not to the same extent as it did before this law passed in 2015. This law is the, called the USA Freedom Act. And so the government has now had four years implementing that law. It's coming up for sunset or reauthorization, as the case may be. And so we have undertaken a, a deep dive into how the government implemented that, that new authority to collect telephone call records um, since it was enacted in 2015. Uh, and that's been a lot of work by our staff. I, I'm pretty confident in saying that they've mastered the details to a very, very granular extent of how this, this authority worked. Um, we really can't get into the details at this point because, as we said, there's a classification review process that we have to put that work product through, and that's where we are now. Um, and I don't want to imply that there's any problem with that process. I think the people in the intelligence community are working very hard to work with us to move that forward expeditiously. It's just a big task. It's very complex material. There's a lot of it, um, and everyone has a lot of things on their plate, but we, we do think that we're receiving good cooperation in, in, in completely good faith, and we're quite hopeful that there will be something that the public can look at relatively soon in the new year. Great. And um, I know you've testified about this to some extent, so um, wonder. And, and now I don't know that everybody here has, has had the benefit of, of reading your testimony on this issue. So I think it was pretty short. If anyone's <laughs> concerned about that, um, it, yes. But um, but it would be great to to hear your your perspective about what the in your testimony you were able to. While a lot of this remains under classification review, provide some high level. Um, thoughts about the program and its implementation. Um, so sure. I mean, staying at a very high level, I'll take this just since I already uh, testified on it, but at a very high level, 
there are some public transparency reports that put hard numbers out there, which I think is a pretty great thing that, that we as Americans have access to that, by the way, citizens of, of other countries do not have access to from their intelligence agencies. And those reports show that the number of records, while perhaps not you know, bulk collection in the same way that the previous program was, is still quite large. And we're talking about hundreds of millions of records here um, over a relatively small number of years. Um, and that was predicated on a, a very low number of orders. I think it was 14 orders related to 11 targets last year. And this is all in the public disclosures that the intelligence community, and I see some of the people involved in that, in that transparency work here in the audience, um, have done a very good job putting out. Um, so that gives you a sense of what the stakes are in a program like this. Um, then there are questions about how the authority was implemented. Um, we looked at the challenges that NSA publicly disclosed that it experienced in implementing the authority. Um, what we found was that those challenges were inadvertent, that they were not the result of any abuse or malfeasance. Um, at the same time, this is my, my individual judgment as a member of the board, um, and we'll have obviously more information about our collective views when the report is released, but my judgment is that the agency made the right decision based on the evidence before it in choosing to suspend the program. I don't want to, I don't want to go any further than that because I think that's the, only, that's the level of depth that we can safely go to until the report is out, and then we're confident that there will be some more declassified information that will inform the basis for these judgments. So, it, so just as, and I think Adam's laid this out already, there was a period in time in which the, the program was suspended because of these questions about how the information was being handled. And so the question is, as we move forward and talk about reauthorization, um, are you able to talk about the intelligence need? Is, is there an ongoing intelligence need to continue this program, or, or, or would we be okay if it were suspended indefinitely? talk about the counterterrorism need from metadata analysis generally? Um, yeah, I mean, I certainly sort at, at, again, saying it at quite a high level, I think that there's value to having um, a two-hop program. So one of the benefits that this program um, allowed for was it allowed the intelligence community to reach not just um, one telephone number away from who you're calling, but another hop away from that. Um, this was a change from um, back in the day, uh, prior to the Snowden disclosures, when the program is operated back then, allowed for three hops. So there is, sort of a, I think, a general intelligence community need to, um, and, and use for, from a national security perspective, to reach out to two hops. I, mean, I think the question that we confront in this program is, given the limitations of this particular program, um, was the intelligence value that was being obtained um, cost-effective in this case? Was it, um, was it appropriately balanced with the privacy interests at stakes, with some of the compliance issue, issues that were being confronted, and the like? But I think at a general, um, if you step back and look at a two-hot metadata program, there's national security value in that type of program from my personal standpoint. Um, now, again, there were limitations in this particular program of what type of metadata could be collected. There's, of course, experts have... Um, talked a lot about the ways in which terrorists are shifting their modes of communication. So there's questions of whether or not this program was reaching all the ways that terrorists um, nowadays communicates. Um, there's questions of whether new authorities may need to be brought to bear to reach all these new modalities in terms of how terrorists communicate. So these are all types of questions that we confronted in looking at the value of this program. So I'll defer further discussion until the, um, the report is out. I, I think I, I'll just say that I agree with um, 
with with Adam and his testimony that um, the um, the the uh, concerns that the NSA had that prompted it to shut down the program were inadvertent. They weren't uh, a result of an abuse of authority. Uh, and at the same time, I, th I think that the the decision to shut down the program, to suspend the program, was in fact justified, and it made sense. Um, and so, uh, so I think hopefully that's helpful for present purposes. And you know, just stepping back, I think uh, you know if you can understand like compliance incidents or difficulties with uh, technical issues, um, it just goes to show how uh, we as a society, as a government, uh, need to bring all of our resources to bear to, to ensure that um, we're, we're getting these uh, programs technically right and we're hitting the right balance between uh, uh, obtaining the type of information that the government uh, should get um, in order to uh, secure the country, um, while at the same time not intruding too much on people's privacy. It's an extremely hard balance to hit, um, both from the conceptual level, from the legal standpoint that we're so familiar with, and just from the technical standpoint. Um, and that's something that I've learned a lot about through working on this report. Um, staying on the on the topic of prior prior work that you've done so far, before we kind of move into what's what's next, um, one of the um, things that I think has been so remarkable about the PCLAB, as has been talked about before, is this incredibly comprehensive prior 215 report that was made public, and same with the 702 report, um, with which Sharon gets again gets gets an enormous amount of credit for. Um, but one of the questions that, as as a member of the public, very interested in these issues, is question about the 12333 program, for, about which there's a lot less publicly available information. Um, and um, curious as to whether and to what extent any of the internal work that you all have done on the 12333 program would or could be made publicly available. So if I can again start with a pedantic micro-correction. Um, but I think it's an important one. 12333 is an executive order, right? And Jen was the, an expert on all this stuff, but just for the audience, that structures into the exercise of authorities by the intelligence community. So it assigns responsibilities to different intelligence community elements. It also mandates certain privacy and civil liberties protections. Um, and so what the board undertook, um, and Sharon is free to jump out of the audience and slap me if I get any of this wrong, because she was there when they undertook it, was an examination of certain counterterrorism-related activities conducted pursuant to Executive Order 12333. And one of those um, deep dive examinations was completed before the three of us showed up. And we inherited the rest as, as open projects. And what we said when we came on board is that we were going to look at the work that had been done and continue the work and bring each project to an appropriate conclusion. We're continuing to do that. That file remains open. Um, those are big, big bites to chew, frankly. And we have a lot of things to chew with a very small staff. But we're taking that work seriously, and we're going to continue to push forward towards an appropriate conclusion. Our goal is always to have things, to have the maximum transparency possible result from every project. And sometimes that means 100% unclassified. Sometimes that means checkerboard redactions. We will always push for the, for, the, for the greatest declassification within each report that we can. But unavoidably, sometimes it will mean that reports remain classified. And part of the reason for that is we are not an original classifier within the government. So we don't have the authority to designate some piece of information, top secret, something unclassified, and so forth. We have to abide by the classification decisions made by the entities that originally classify the information. They own that information. Now, we, we will have a back and forth with them, encouraging them to move in the direction of transparency. But at the end of the day, 
our statute requires us to undertake our transparency mission with concern for class, the protection of classified information, and we, and we do that. So if I can turn now to some of um, the, the work plan that you have going forward, one of the things that um, I'd love to talk about is the program on facial recognition and aviation security. Um, that's obviously a very hot topic, the question of facial recognition, where we have um, a range of views um, being expressed publicly from we should ban all facial recognition to let's use it, I mean, and use it a lot to protect our security. Um, and so curious as to both the scope of the program and your thoughts about how it's being used in the United States and whether it's being used consistently, uh, effectively and consistent with privacy and civil liberties. Go ahead, Evan. Okay, I mean, I'm happy to take this one. I just spoke about this yesterday, so it's fresh in my mind. Uh, so we've launched this project uh, on the use of facial recognition and other biometric technologies to verify identity in the context of aviation security. And I think all of those little caveats are important because facial recognition on the street corner is different than facial recognition used by a commercial actor for its own marketing or other purposes, is different than used by the government in a specific operational context for a specific purpose, um, in a specific physical context with a specific type of lighting and so forth. All of these things go into um, how this technology is going to be deployed, the privacy and civil liberties implications that it raises, and so forth. And so we're drilling in on this very specific operational context uh, for various reasons. One is because the government is moving forward pretty fast, deploying facial recognition in, in cooperation with industry partners in the airports. Second, because, frankly, it's something that people are very interested in because it touches them in their daily lives. They go to the airport, they see a camera, they see a, a DHS notice that their photo may be taken and used for a certain purpose, and that naturally raises questions. Um, and we think the department has, has done some good things to try to explain what it's doing. That's not to say they couldn't do a lot more. Um, and that's why we're doing this project, to make sure that there is full public transparency about this and that the hard questions are being asked before we're 100 miles down the road. De deploying this technology. So that raises, I think, an, an interesting question that kind of cross-cuts all of these areas, which is how technology is changing our understanding of privacy. And particularly if you look at the way we as a nation have histor historically thought about this, we've mostly focused on the point of collection. Um, but as you brought up, the issue is to some extent the point of collection, but also what happens with the data once it's collected? How long is it retained? How is it used? How is it, who is it shared with? And so curious as to all of your thoughts about the ways in which technology is reshaping our conceptions of privacy and, and what and where the gaps are in terms of our legal understanding and, and their policies. I'll just throw out a few thoughts and then, and then pass along. No, I think, I think that's absolutely right that you've seen in the last few years, both from a legal standpoint, so from the Fourth Amendment standpoint, there seems to be increasing concern, not with sort of the point of collection, did you get a warrant to get this? but also sort of more broader programmatic questions of, all right, in this program, what are some of the holistic protections in place um, that tend to show reasonableness or not reasonableness? And they look, a lot of times we'll look at sort of back-end protections of how long is the data being stored for, who is it being shared with, how is it being used, things of that sort. So you see it in the legal area, but you definitely also see it in the policy area. And I think it's arising, um, not exclusively, but in large part because some of the national security um, requirements demand large points of, of data being collected, not necessarily in, in, in bulk, um, but still enormous, you know, millions and millions and millions of records. And so when you're talking about those type of records, 
yes, a point of collection is important. What type of suspicion, um, what type of level of suspicion is a law or policy requiring? But then at the back end, I think there's a lot of understandable public concern, appropriately so, of what's happening with the data at that point. How long is the government retaining it for? Um, again, who is it being shared with? How is it being used? And some of that, I think, goes to often a level of perhaps comfort with what the program scope is currently or trust in the government at a particular moment in time, but then some concern, okay, if the data is not being deleted, then what's going to happen in 10 years, 15 years, 20 years down the line? Um, so I, I absolutely think you're right. And, and I think we're seeing, again, both the law um, as the courts are evolving and the statutes are evolving, but also on a policy side as well. So, um, I mean, I think this is one of the big issues that we all have to confront in uh, both the Fourth Amendment and the policy context going forward um, and trends in technology. I, obviously, what we're experiencing is both trends and capabilities by both private parties and governments to collect information. And so that's something that we all have to grapple with. Um, that and then I think societal expectations. And so people are now more aware of the type of information they share and exactly um, you know, how to measure societal expectations, what they are is difficult to get your hands around. I mean, people are in fact sharing this information with um, all of these electronic providers. Um, but at the same time, they want their privacy to be protected. And so um, uh, understanding the societal expectations and how they should influence policy, I think, is important. Um, you're, you're, uh, the, the technical aspect of your question about point of collection versus later on in the life cycle of data, I think, is a really interesting one. And just uh, uh, you know, to speak for, for our audience, I think when you, when you think about the Fourth Amendment, uh, which uh, is written in a way suggesting that its protections are triggered when a search or a seizure has occurred, thereby suggesting that if a search or a seizure has not occurred, um, the Fourth Amendment does not protect um, any of that uh, collection of information. Um, as a result of the way it's written, it's natural to read that provision uh, to apply only to the point of collection. And I think that um, we actually now have, a, in the last few decades, a body of case law um, regulating, through the Fourth Amendment, aspects of government interaction with data that is not just the point of collection. So Janie mentioned that, say, you collect something, and this was most apparent in, for example, the, um, the 215 program, perhaps something that the audience will be familiar with, which is that the, um, the FISA court, when it authorized the program, authorized the collection of this information and then through the, the reasonableness requirement of the Fourth Amendment imposed certain restrictions on the usage of that information. Um, and so, you know, exactly how the Fourth Amendment is going to apply outside of the point of collection, I think, is still to be determined. And it's, it's actually a way in which I feel um, that the the law, one way to think about it is we shouldn't let the Fourth Amendment, to the extent that it only applies at the point of collection, uh, necessarily hamstring us when we think about policy. Because uh, the Fourth Amendment, hypothetically, may only apply at the point of collection. Maybe we want to think about it that way. But that's not the way we should think about it with respect to policy. Because we have other policy considerations that might be uh, beyond the scope of the Fourth Amendment. That, and I think um, a second um, way in which this question intersects with the work that we do is that um, it's understandable for courts to approach uh, the Fourth Amendment or legal questions of this nature at the point of collection. It's what they're familiar with, and it allows them to address uh, Fourth Amendment questions on a case-by-case -case basis. And courts, of course, are case-by-case -case adjudicators, whereas when you have programmatic questions about like whether this collection of this 
um, this type of data on a larger scale um, is a good or a bad idea. Um, I, I feel that's where our board fits in and where we can add value. Um, and while um, we see analysis of that nature sometimes in declassified FISA court opinions, we have seen things like that. Um, it, at least to me, uh, speaking you know, just for myself, it doesn't feel natural for a court to be conducting that analysis. It feels more natural for um, some other agency that has the authority to go and like probe behind um, questions or uh, assertions in brief, uh, briefs um, to, to have that kind of ability to, to speak to those issues. Uh, I agree with everything my colleague said, just to add um, a, a little bit to, to both of their points. Um, I strongly agree with, I think, the implied premise of Aditya's comment that the Fourth Amendment does not necessarily need to be refashioned into an instrument to, to answer every privacy question. The Fourth Amendment does what it does and says what it says, and obviously I'm coming from a particular jurisprudential school here, but that's not the only tool that we have. We have Congress. We have state legislatures. We have other regulatory organs. Um, and so those entities are not bound by the specific parameters of the Fourth Amendment. Congress can exceed the constitutional floor in terms of requirements for the government to access data held by private actors or third parties, for example. And so I would be delighted to see the energies of people concerned about these things focused on developing statutory schemes that reflect real-world conditions rather than necessarily trying to cram everything into Fourth Amendment doctrine where that might be an awkward fit. Um, and then in terms of, of going back to the question, uh, I completely agree with, again, what I take to be the implied premise, which is that we as lawyers always look to the point of collection because that's, that's where the legal rules apply, but that may not be the only important place to look anymore. And I think that's particularly true as the volume of data created by our digitized lifestyles expands so massively. You no longer need to go into someone's house or someone's papers or effects or another constitutionally protected area to learn a ton of stuff about that person. And so the point of collection may not be good enough as a safeguard anymore. And so when we go and do our work looking at collection programs like call records, looking at things like facial recognition in the airports, for example, there is a series of questions in my mind and I think in all of our minds that we ask. How long are you keeping this data? Why do you need to keep all of it? What other systems are you going to plug this into? Who has access to this data and how are you controlling that access? Um, are you checking to make sure that that access was only for authorized mission purposes, et cetera, et cetera? This is all what you might call the back-end set of questions. And I think those questions are increasingly important as the volume of data and the sensitivity of data that you can get without potentially doing a Fourth Amendment search expands. So, so your, the last, your last two responses raised another question that I meant to ask earlier, which is, you know, obviously a big piece of what we see publicly are the reports that come out. But a, piece, a chunk of your work is also doing policy advising behind the scenes. And so I'm wondering both what percentage of your work approximately is that and how receptive do you find your audiences in terms of are you brought in at the point of time where you actually can make a difference in the crafting of policies and programs along the way? In some sense, I'm probably, of the three of us, I'd be interested to hear my colleague's thoughts. I'm just in the uh, position least to answer the question uh, in a good way because uh, I've, I've, I've uh, been a member, I guess, for about four months now. And um, it's hard for me to put percentages on it. But um, when I joined, we had the, um, the USA Freedom Act report and, uh, in full flow. And, and I feel I've spent a whole lot of my time on, on that, um, that issue. Um, and um, so it's just hard for me to put 
percentages on it, and I haven't seen enough of the life cycle of policy advising to, to give you a sense of um, whether and how that really works. Yeah. yeah, it's a little hard for me to put percentages on it as well, just because, again, in the last few months, we really have been very UFA-focused, but it doesn't mean that, because a lot of our work recently has been UFA-focused, that um, we also have a number of advice projects happening. Um, in terms of when we come in on the life cycle, so generally on advice projects, um, unlike oversight, the agency will come to us and ask us. Um, we obviously prefer to come in as early as possible because it is always easier to change course at an earlier stage. And so that is our preference that we, we do you know, voice and talk to the agencies about. Um, but I would say that it's been generally sort of, obviously when they're coming to us, they're seeking our advice. It has been a generally collaborative, um, collaborative enterprise at each of our projects that we've engaged in. Um, going back to the to the set of um, policy Fourth Amendment related questions, one of the, in addition to thinking about kind of what happens to data after the fact, even in in the questions and the responses, we've talked about points of collection, we've talked about programs, but one of the interesting questions is how various databases intersect with one another and how much can be gleaned about individuals from the intersection of different databases. And I'm wondering to what extent that's an issue that, that you all have thought about and are taking on and, and thinking through. Definitely something we think about. Um, if I can throw out a somewhat off-the-cuff judgment here, it's that I think agencies don't always know when they start what the destination is in terms of what they're going to connect to what other systems, what data they're going to integrate with other data sets. Uh, and so I think as I've become more conscious of the fact that agencies are not always fully aware of their own future intentions, we perhaps are becoming even more vigilant about the, our, the limits of our ability to know now what is going to be done in the future. And so asking those questions now uh, in light of that future uncertainty, because we know that what you might do in the future with this data, as Janie said earlier, potentially raises future implications that would qualitatively change the degree of intrusion that a program presents. Uh, right? So facial recognition is another example of this. You're getting all these photos. What are you going to do with them? And, and to its credit, I will say the department, the DHS has already come out and said, we're deleting U.S. person photographs when they're taken on the jetway in the airport, for example, at the 18 airports or whatever it is, where they're doing this, this uh, biometric pilot, uh, and they even reduced the number of hours that they're retaining those photos for us. So there has been transparency about that. Uh, but that's just one example. Right? Once you have that data set, once you have that system built, there are all kinds of other things that you could potentially plug into it, transforming what is a, a simple identity verification transaction into something that is qualitatively different, and that potentially shades more towards a surveillance uh, transaction. And so we're very conscious of that. What, um, as, as you've done this work, what do you, what do you see as um, examples that other governments are doing well that we might learn from as, as we're, we're moving forward in this, in this space and thinking through the ways in which technology and the quantity of information about all of us shapes surveillance policies and also our privacy expectations as well? I mean, I would say generally, of course, we're, we're U.S.-focused, um, and so I don't know that um, we have a whole lot of expertise um, or insight into the details of other governments. Um, I will say that, um, as is, I think Adam alluded to earlier, um, the U.S. is really at the forefront, I think, of, of quite expansive oversight of the national security uh, apparatus and has transparency measures in place that are really quite 
unique as compared to um, you know, uh, other countries. I think that looking to what other countries are doing and having those discussions with other countries is instructive and valuable. And we always, of course, should be open to learning from other countries at the same time we have our own um, values that we need to adhere to in this country or instead of constitutions and laws. So I think that um, looking to other countries can only sort of go so far. Um, but I don't know if, if my colleagues have anything to add to that. This comparative angle is a particular <laughs> interest of mine, um, just to keep abreast of what other countries are doing and how, how we stack up and whether there are lessons learned that we can take from, from other contexts and bring back. Um, but I will say that I, I agree with Janie that I do think that the U.S. is in the forefront in terms of oversight and transparency. Now, obviously, this is not the end of the adventure. We're still, I think, at the beginning of the adventure, particularly as technology begins to exponentially, potentially expand the capabilities of these agencies. Uh, but we should give credit where it's due and at least acknowledge that some things have gone right, particularly in recent years. And so just to list a few examples, we now have a mandate for declassification of FISA court opinions. And there were some pretty important opinions that were released recently about how the FBI is using data and searching data uh, collected under the authority that's known as Section 702, which is an important electronic surveillance authority. So that's a significant transparency mandate that did not exist before. We have mandatory statistical transparency reporting. So if you go on the DNI's website, you can see exactly how many orders were issued under Title I of FISA, which is electronic surveillance of agents of a foreign power who are in the United States. You can see exactly how many targets there were under Section 702, which I alluded to earlier. You can see exactly how many call records were collected under this USA Freedom Act that we were talking about. I'm not aware of any country that has statistical transparency like that. And, of course, we're always looking for opportunities to push it forward, but it's important to say we've gone pretty far compared to anyone else and to give credit to the people who are working in the institutions every day, advocating for that, persuading their colleagues that that is an okay thing to do, and then putting in the hours to develop technical methods and analytical approaches to develop these metrics and things like that. I think I don't have too much more to add, and this might just be a summation of what my colleagues have said, but um, I feel that we live in a country that has a unique set of capabilities on the national security context, as well as a unique set of values. And I kind of like both sides of that coin um, and think that's the challenge that um, us, other members within the executive branch, within Congress, should and try to seek to preserve. And what do you see as, and this is my last question, I'm going to open it up to the audience, so, so start thinking of your questions. But what do you see as, as the big kind of, the, the big trends moving forward, the things that, what are the things that kind of keep you up at night and you, when you're starting to, when you think about the future and, and what's coming next? What, where, where does your head go? Uh, I mean, I think that there are so many, and we've touched upon some of them um, uh, to this point, but um, part of it, uh, is the technical aspects of um, the ability of um, governments and private entities to collect information. Um, and so, you know, one example of that, of course, would be facial recognition. That's one example, but there's so many um, at this point. And so uh, uh, the technical changes that are occurring, the societal changes that are occurring um, in terms of what people expect, what people want from their government and from the private entities with which they interact. Um, and then finally, um, I, we haven't talked, I guess, so much, but Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, where it's going um, in the future, how it's going to interact with the set of uh, programs that we as a board deal with. Um, I mean, I think that's, uh, that's 
really interesting and will be challenging in the years to come. I think the only thing I'd add, yeah, Fourth Amendment, so where the developments will be is, is, is a matter of great interest to me. I think that we're seeing in some of the Supreme Court opinions that came out recently, um, not only a continued divergence of views, obviously, but some of the justices um, really trying to ask questions of, is the Fourth Amendment jurisprudence as it is currently um, constructed, is that um, consistent with the original understanding of Fourth Amendment? Is that the right place to be now? Um, and so that, that's sort of an interesting um, space developed. And then the other, only other thing I'd say is that I think that with the new technologies that are coming, there's oftentimes um, a lot of talk of the privacy implications that will accompany them, so facial recognition and the impact on them. But I think we also have to think about the flip side of it, which is how can new technologies actually help um, protect privacies? And so we're certainly seeing that in some of the programs that we're looking into now where, the, where technology is helping control access, use, and, and other things of that sort. So I think there's really sort of two flipped, two sides to the coin of sort of new technology in that space, and that's something that we all think about. Technology, and then I think something that we haven't mentioned yet, but what are other countries that don't share our values doing with this technology? Not that we have oversight over the Chinese government, but the fact that a fifth of the world's, thank God, but a fact that a fifth of the world's population is being subjected to an unprecedented experiment in comprehensive surveillance and frankly, thought control is pretty scary. And so watching that evolve is a dystopian experiment that I think should be pretty bracing for all of us. Questions? Sharon. Hi, Sharon Bradford Franklin. Thanks for the panel. Thanks for the shout outs. Um, I feel like I have to ask a question. But um, I do want to pick up on um, a reference to uh, the continued examination under uh, Executive Order 12333. And uh, first of all, thank you very much for in the summer and putting out publicly the list of uh, current oversight projects. And I hope you'll continue to keep that updated. But uh, I wanted to ask with regard to that, the prior iteration of the board had undertaken to do the three deep dives, but also to do a public report that would at a high level, or maybe dig deeper, explain to the public in an unclassified report what 12333 is, how it operates at different agencies, what some of these uh, privacy protective or not sufficiently privacy protective rules were. Um, to what extent is that an ongoing project as well, in addition to continuing for the two deep dives? And I used to always get asked when that would be coming out, but to the extent that is something that you're undertaking, um, if you have any kind of projection at all about where that falls in a timeline. Can I answer this one with, a, with an extended metaphor? Um, and so we are, so when we came on, the board had been without a quorum for a year and a year plus, a year and a half, I am without a chairman for two years. So it was sort of like inheriting a house from your beloved aunt whose house was stocked with wonderful books and mementos and other things. And that's great. And you pick up all these great things that you can then take and give new life to. But on the other hand, it also takes you a lot of time to go through the library and see what you have and clean out the closets and everything else. So we inherited a lot of great projects from the prior board. We're moving all of them forward. We're going to bring them all to an appropriate conclusion, right, as determined by the current board members. But at this point, we can't give any more information than that about when that's going to happen. But we're taking it seriously. We know it's an important project. Pat? 
Thank you. Thanks to all of you for coming out. I'm Pat Eddington. I'm one of the uh, research fellows here at Cato. I want to go back uh, just very quickly to kind of follow up on something that Sharon talked about, which is this whole issue of, of 12333. But I want to start with uh, kind of a more basic question. I just have two questions here real quick. Do you consider your work product something that you own? In other words, your observations, your conclusions, and your recommendations. Do you, do you consider yourselves to be in full ownership of that? Um, so I, I think what you're alluding to is whether other agencies have a say over whether board work product can be declassified or released to the public. Is that from, from a statutory standpoint, what I'm looking for is the language that, that basically says, as Mr. Bronxmeyer did in his letter to me on my FOIA, uh, that you can't desegregate anything here, or, or more, more to the point, uh, based on the response from the agency, in essence. And, and let me tell you the, con the deep concern that I have with that. Right now, I'm in litigation with the Department of Defense um, and the National Security Agency over their attempts, essentially, to suppress a Department of Defense Inspector General report on an NSA program that you may have heard of called Trailblazer. Um, the largest programmatic failure in NSA history uh, and, and a, a major contributor to the 9-11 intelligence disaster. And what Judge McFadden has rejected in that case is the efforts of DOD and NSA, essentially, to try to excise anything that would be embarrassing or otherwise problematic for NSA. I'm not going to bore you with all the details. We don't have the time. But the concern that I have is that if you let an agency, whether it's my former employer, the Central Intelligence Agency, or any other one of the 17 agencies of the IC, dictate to you what you can say with respect to your conclusions, your recommendations, and your observations, respectfully, I have to, I have to just say, I think it vitiates the, the, the board's ability to, to function properly. So I'll, I'll just go back and kind of echo what I think is Sharon's plea here which is that you go back to that agency in question and say, we are going to say something publicly at least to the effect that either there's nothing to be concerned about here or that there may be some things to be concerned about here and we have notified the committees of jurisdiction to that effect. Can we get a pledge from you on that today? Uh, well, I can, I, mean, I can say more than that. When we complete classified oversight reports, those reports go to the Hill because there are people there who have the clearances and the facilities to receive them and to read them. So they would receive the entire report in that case. I mean, zooming out a little bit, uh, obviously we're an administrative agency. That means that we're a creature of the statute that created us, and we have only those authorities that are in our statute. And so what our statute says is that we should make our reports public to the extent consistent with the protection of classified information. And both parts of that are important to us. So we always push to get the maximum transparency possible. That's why we released the inventory of all of our active oversight projects, which I think is the first time the agency has done that because we want to present the greatest transparency possible. And Jen, perhaps you could tweet out a link to that so everyone here can, can easily access it. Uh, but the other half is important too, the protection of classified information. And as I said before, we are not an original classification authority. I'm new to the executive branch, so I had to learn all this lingo. But what that means is that the agencies that produce and classify the information are the ones who determine and control the classification of that stuff. And we, we engage in a back and forth with them to try to get more moved into the declassify and release category. Um, but ultimately, we have to go through that process. It's our statutory obligation to protect that information. And that means that when there are FOIA requests, even if we would love to just make things transparent, it is 
is our statutory obligation to refer things out to the agencies that originally created and therefore own that information. Right, and so all work product has to go through a declassification process and things are connected and we always push to get the most of any document that we can declassified. And that's a back and forth that we go through to the agency because it is very important to us. It's part of our statutory mission. But that's a balance that has two halves. Okay. Yes, sir. Hi, um, Jay Klapperug, Project and Government Oversight. Um, very excited to be to hear that you guys will have a report on 215 in the next several weeks, and definitely will read that as soon as it's out. Um, I do want to ask, though, since you know we, we have a little more time now in the wake of the extension that Congress just granted, but the original deadline for that program and presumably action Congress would have needed taken um, up until that short-term extension was just nine days from now. So I, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about um, before the short-term extension, what efforts were being made to ensure that um, the information and recommendations you um, presumably are including that report would be released in a timely manner so that it could have been part of the public debate in the event that a uh, reauthorization was going to be passed this month. I mean, I don't know how, inter- how interesting or useful it is to get too deeply into our internal mechanics of our very small agency, but obviously we're cognizant of legislative deadlines. We work to ensure that what we do will be useful to the public, to Congress, and to other important stakeholders. Um, I, I was able to testify in the Senate Judiciary Committee um, recently, and so that testimony is public and available, both the prepared statement and then the back and forth with the senators, if anyone's interested in that. But certainly we're cognizant of that. We're cognizant of the always evolving legislative calendar, and we do everything that we can to make sure that our work will be available and useful. Greg. First, thank you for uh, the work you're doing. The work that PCLAB has done to declassify information has been very valuable. Um, On facial recognition, um, a bill was recently introduced to require a warrant for three or more days of ongoing surveillance of a person in public places um, using facial recognition. And we're having a debate in the privacy community about whether those circumstances ever pertain right now under current fact. Like, is there is there a use scenario that you've seen through your work that would involve the ongoing surveillance of a person over three or more days involving facial recognition? Is that actually happening? Here's the language of the bill. Utilization of facial recognition technology to engage in a sustained effort to track physical movements of an identified individual through public places over a period of time of greater than 72 hours, whether in real time or through application of such technology to stored information. Is that happening? Our project is, as I said, pretty tightly focused on identity verification in airports. Uh, And it doesn't seem like that would be the place where sustained surveillance would be taking place, given that people pass through airports in a relatively short period of time. But if I can respond to the, to the idea there, 
to me, without commenting on whether I think that's the right legislation or not, it's exciting to me that those kind of conversations are happening because that is the type of line drawing exercise that legislatures are uniquely suited to undertake. So I think it's, it's really constructive that legislators and people coming up with proposed legislation are thinking exactly about where the balance should be drawn because when you're not dealing with the strictures of constitutional doctrine, you have the freedom to just do what feels right. So I think that, that's, that's all to the good. You want to add to that? I truly don't have much to add and can't answer the question directly, so regrettably. But um, I, I think that the, um, my, my answer would be the same, which is that uh, this is an important conversation for our society to have. Um, and so it's, it's really interesting and useful for Congress and um, members of the public to think about what the appropriate balance is to, to uh, strike both about the collection and then also about usage once it's been collected and uh, how it should be used. Sir. Uh, thank you. I'm Leon Weintraub, a retired member of the Foreign Service. I'd like to ask you about uh, the use of facial recognition in airports. Uh, if you get a hit, I'd like to ask, what are the databases you're using to get that hit? And if you do get a hit, what action might be taken? For example, would you simply monitor the person's movement, which flight is he or she on? Would someone, and who might that someone be, be authorized to interact with this person, to, to uh, talk to him and ask him to detain that person? Uh, would they be able to question him for any purpose? What would happen? when you have a hit? I mean, I think, uh, uh, so So uh, I can speak just in generalities about this. I'm uh, interested to hear what others have to say too, but um, it depends on the type of program we're thinking about. And so, for example, we, we might have certain types of facial recognition programs in which uh, essentially what the, uh, the computer is doing there is it's recognizing your face, your which you're placing before a camera, and it's recognizing your, uh, your driver's license and ensuring that the driver's license and the face match up with one another, which is exactly what an agent might do when you reach an airport. And uh, the, the idea behind this program is that uh, it's a one-to-one it's -one match of, of a person and their driver's license, uh, is that it, it's faster or more efficient than, than having a person make that match, perhaps even better and more accurate. Um, but then we might have other programs where we have like a, what we might think of as a sort of a one-to-one -one match, a one-to-end match, which is that the, uh, the, the computer is matching a face to a number of other faces that are being stored in the computer. And we can think of other reasons, and this I think is what your question was alluding to, why you might want to have a system of that nature, um, which is that you would then be uh, either, um, you would either be verifying that this person is in fact not simply somebody who has that driver's license, but is in fact the person who um, the person is presenting themselves to be. Um, or alternatively, if you're using it to screen out and try to do some sort of uh, security type screening through the computer program. So I think there are different ways in which um, the, the facial recognition programs can work and we're still at the beginning stages of figuring out what might be deployed um, uh, anywhere um, on any platform, whether it's at airports or elsewhere within the economy. Can I, can I just follow on that a bit with a little bit of just specific factual background um, about what Customs and Border Protection is doing? 
in the airports right now. So uh, Congress, after 9-11, this was another 9-11 commission recommendation, mandated that DHS use biometrics to confirm entry and exit into the, ex- entry into the United States and then exit from the United States. And the purpose was to make sure that people who may have overstayed their visas actually left on time. And it's taken a very long time for DHS to figure out a way to use biometrics to do this as opposed to biographic information like your name and birthday, because it's just very complicated. How do you get people to provide biometrics as they're driving out across a land border or as they're boarding a flight without creating a massive impasse? And so facial recognition is what they have struck on as a practicable way to do this. So what CBP is doing now, Customs and Border Protection, at the airports where they're piloting this, and it's in the teens, I don't know the precise number, 18 or something like that, gradually increasing that number as the months go by, is as people depart, board their outgoing international flight, they're using facial recognition to take a picture and compare it to a gallery of the passport photos of all the people on that flight. And so it is a one to 150 or 200 or 300 match. Um, And that confirms that that person, check, has left the United States. And this is still in the pilot phase, but it's a pretty widely deployed pilot at this point. Um, In Atlanta, CBP has partnered with the Transportation Security Administration and Delta Airlines to build that out through the full phase of the traveler experience, starting at the check-in point, uh, then through the TSA checkpoint, and then on the outbound flight. But it's important to note that at this point, it is just identity verification that you are the right person who is, who, is, who is scheduled to be on that flight that day, and they are matching your face to your passport photo. Now, one thing that we're conscious of, obviously, is once you've built this backbone, then conceivably you could plug other systems into it. But at this point, it is an identity verification system that they're using to facilitate uh, this biometric exit requirement, confirming that people leave the United States, and then piggybacking on that to facilitate other stages of the travel process. So it's not the type of surveillance type matching or, or checking that you hypothesized. But of course, we're cognizant that technologies, once created, can have an uncertain future. Thank you. And with that, I would like you to please join me in um, thanking this, the panelists and for their work, for their transparency, and for being here today.